0: Hi, I'm Brooke Boney. Welcome to Tales of Sydney, a podcast from City of Sydney, where we explore what's living in your (laughs) neighbourhood. With our booming population and busy city lives, we often think of Sydneysiders as human residents only. But what about the ones we can't see or don't count? The hidden inhabitants that walk, crawl or fly amongst us. Today we're looking up, up to the sky that is, and seeing what's there during the day and when it gets dark. If you live in Sydney, you may not have seen one, but you've more than likely heard them. Bats are the only mammals able to fly, but what happens when they end up where they're not supposed to be? So on 29 June, I get this call that there's this thing just hanging from the ceiling. This is wildlife rescuer Lisa Wynn, who got called out to save a creature at the Bureau of Meteorology
1: you know, I pack up all my stuff, I go out there, they bring me in, I'm all ready for like this heroic rescue and stuff, you know, somebody comes up with like carries up this big ladder for me so that I can reach the ceiling. And it was like, there's just like this big furry, well, not big, but like bigger than a moth, let's say furry lump just hanging from the ceiling, just, you know, it was asleep, like I guess it had been flying around and it stopped for the night. And I didn't even need the ladder. I just climbed up on a table and grabbed it and pulled it down. And I was like looking at it and checking it over to see if it was injured. I said, oh, look, it's a boy. It's got a penis. Do you guys want to see the penis? And they're like, no, thanks, actually. Not interested
0: in the bat penis. Lisa's specially trained to handle bats. You actually need to make sure you're vaccinated properly before you touch a bat. So if you ever see one in distress, make sure you don't try and rescue it yourself. You know, I'm actually a little bit creeped out by bats. They are a little bit scary. But am I being too harsh?
2: It's one of those things in, in Western society, we've got an ingrained terror of anything of the night that we can't really see. That, you know, goes back millennia, of course.
0: This is ecologist Tim Pearson speaking to our reporter, Jake Morecambe.
2: Bats have been considered to be, you know, of the devil and uh, Dante in his inferno sort of had all the uh, demons with bat wings, which I think says something about, you know, just attitudes. This is um a couple of grey-headed flying fox pups. These are contact calls. This is the pup basically calling mum, mum. The- these pups at this stage were probably about six weeks, two months old. And the contact calls from the mother sound like this. Mating season is the worst time of the year for noise in a flying fox camp. Flying fox males get really bolshy in mating season. They spend a month or two before they're ready to mate, bulking up on as much food as they can, because they want to be big and strong. They want to prove to all the girls just how big and strong and wonderful they are. And then they tell everyone and they scream at everyone and sort of go, I'm big, I'm strong. I've pointed out to people on occasions that, you know, if we listen to, you know, this is the noise recorded in a food court. Um, yeah, it's, again, just a whole lot of animals all talking <laughs> together. It's just in one case they're uh, they're non-human.
0: So I guess they are more like humans than what I had initially thought. But I still, I can't help but to think of them as as the rats of the sky. That's harsh. This is Jake Morecambe, our producer, and he's actually a really big fan of bats.
3: I would lead a bat fan society. I am all about them. I now go to the park purposefully to see them fly overhead in Sydney Park at like 7pm at night. You just see small little groups of them fly over the sky and I actually went to Sydney Park to go on a bat tour, hunting for bats, but not just any bats, microbats. Was that a sound?
1: Yes, did you hear it? Yeah. That was it, that was one. Oh, you can see.
3: <gasps> the problem bats have hunting at night is that it's hard to see things when it's dark.
1: We are in Sydney Park in St Peters and my name is Sophie Golding. I'm the urban ecology coordinator at the City of Sydney and tonight we are going to try and find some microbats.
3: What's this? What are you holding?
1: A bat detector. This device will amplify the noise of the microbat and we should hear hopefully hear something that goes to the effect of.
3: Without the bat detector you would never be able to hear the sounds <laughs> microbats mystery. make.
1: It's so dark. <laughs> that was so loud. Yeah, so that must that's like an indicator.
3: Bats have developed their ears to be able to hear much better than humans. They can hear sounds from kilometers away, yeah. and they can also detect frequencies that you or I can't hear.
1: Doesn't it sound great? Yeah. I know. It's
3: like discovering treasure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's these frequencies that bat detector is picking up. They use them to hunt and to find out what's around them. They make high frequency sounds that travel through the air until they hit something solid and then bounce back towards them. Their hearing is so good they can tell exactly where that sound came from. We call that echolocation.
1: When they do go really crazy and there's like um, quite long waves and you can hear that really fast paced noise and um, that gives away the fact that they are hunting so they're using their echolocation to pinpoint exactly where their prey is and then slam.
3: I think that's amazing
1: the more you learn the more you understand the more you understand the more you care and the more you care the more you want to protect and the great thing is that the more people that I take on on these microbat kind of detection activities <laughs>
3: <laughs> I would call it, I would call it that for sure I feel like that's what we did
1: detection activity but they they walk away just you know also really amazed
0: at what's around and that's pretty special Someone else who appreciates bats as much as Sophie does made some colourful sculptures for Something Else Is Alive, an exhibition at Customs House.
4: Hello, it's Black Douglas here. I'm a Redfern-based Koori artist, originally hailing from Western Sydney, and now I make my work right near the station in Redfern.
0: He told our producer Jake about why the subject of his artwork meant so much to him and his people.
4: This is Wurrumbi. Wurrumbi is a Darug word, uh, which is a Western Sydney Aboriginal language name, for uh, the fruit bat or the flying fox, as most people know them. Uh, I chose to represent that spirit because um, the where by the fruit bat, is the dominant totem for the Darug people of Western Sydney in the area where I grew up, which is Penrith, Blacktown, the Penrith, that area there. And what exactly does
3: it then embody as this totem?
4: I'm glad you asked, because... It's a very important mammal. What was made known to me by Darragelda was uh, that this mammal is possibly the only other mammal apart from us that produce, that harvests its own food. And so if you think about the fact that this bat, it it feeds on the fig or other species of native um, plants. And then where it's... Uh, drops those droppings, that then has created a a succession of habitat since time immemorial on this continent. And so um, then the bat returns to those areas successively through generations and schools up its children like we school our children about where to buy food. Um, Because of that aforementioned connection to the Darug people, um, I looked at this bat as very much um, uh, reflective of Aboriginal people. And that is that most Australians don't understand Aboriginal people and never have since the inception of the colony. And so um, why? Because, um, you know, generally people are fearful of what they don't understand.
0: During the daylight hours, though, while the flying foxes and the bats are roosting, you'll find that Sydney is full of birds and some of our most iconic birds can be found at the Royal Botanic Gardens. We've come here to have a look
5: at the powerful owl, which is Australia's largest nocturnal avian predator. So, nighttime hunter that is a bird.
0: This is John Martin, an ecologist who works at the gardens. He's giving Jake a tour.
5: The thing that's really cool about this species is it's a woodland bird, but we're here in the middle of the city. So, you wouldn't expect to see them here because it needs a lot of big trees. Uh, But we are in the Botanic Garden, so there are a few thousand big trees, but they eat brush-tailed possums, they eat flying foxes, and here we can see, if we just look up, that this owl has got these massive talons, you can actually see them there, even though it's sitting a few metres up in the tree there above us, you can see those talons just at the bottom, and uh, let's see, sometimes, you know, we're no threat to it, so it's not worried, but sometimes you do see them, and they are... they'll look down at you and they've got just amazing eyes they actually they really bore into you you know it's um yeah they're a really cool bird. Do you think a lot of people have peeves with birds? (laughs) You know right here we have an Indian miner or common miner so it's not a native species Uh, they certainly have a bad rap and a lot of people do say oh you know they're terrible blah 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 Look, the reason why they're an issue is because they nest in tree hollows and they compete with our native species for a limited habitat that's available in our city environments and, and agricultural environments where we've removed a lot of trees so there's less hollows. That's an issue. But in the grand scheme of things there are worse problems out there. So, um, you know, but tree hollows are a really important um, habitat in our landscape and they're really important to retain trees that have hollows. But uh, look, a noisy miner, which is a native bird, just flew by and it's um, just actually splashing into the water to get a drink and they are actually a bigger issue for our native species. Even though they're a native bird, they work um, in, a, in a as a group and they will exclude and harass the smaller birds, which is a big issue, and then also sometimes even much larger birds, they'll just mob them. And then, you know, it's, they actually have a bigger impact on the birds in our environment. They actually decrease bird diversity more than the introduced Indian minor.
0: One of the most misunderstood birds in Sydney is the ibis, Sometimes it can be seen fishing food out of bins, and it's earned the harsh nickname bin chicken. But why is it here?
5: The story with them is that they have increased dramatically in urban areas, not just in Sydney, but in other parts of the country. They are a wetland bird uh, that has shifted to the coast because of loss of habitat. And so I actually say to people that they are a messenger. And that, those long legs and that long neck and that long bill, they all combine to be a perfect bird for walking around in wetlands and probing into the water and probing into the mud. But when you've got no water, it works perfectly well in bins. So, you know, when you look at a, at a bin chicken in a bin and you think, eh, that's not right then you're right, it's not right. They should be in a, in a natural environment, and
3: that is a message that we should all be aware of. Um, but the ibis, so we were talking about how it's here now, but it didn't necessarily always come from here, like being the coast. What brought it? What brought the ibis here? Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a
5: mystery, but the what we talk about with respect to the increase in the ibis population is... Uh, that one, they got pushed from the inland wetlands to the coast from things like drought and changed habitat. But, uh, there's a, there's a couple of factors. And, and believe it or not, in the 1970s, some ibis were translocated from a zoo down in Victoria. It was called Hillsville Sanctuary to Taronga Zoo here in Sydney. And they were released into the grounds of the zoo as a liberty flock. Exact words that they wrote it, um, about. And what does that mean? they didn't put them in a cage they just let them go in the zoo and those birds uh no doubt started to learn about the city learn about the free food and maybe they flew away and told their friends and brought some of them back (laughs) but uh you know we don't actually have a good understanding of how that that mechanism um happened that the ibis shifted to the to the city environment but it has uh happened over the last sort of 30 years And since the late 90s, they've sort of been on the radar as a bit of a a nuisance species. Like, it's funny. So, here in the garden, we have heaps of tourists uh, walking around and they love them because they're big and they're different and they're not afraid of you. So, they come up close and you can get a great photo. So, you know, people really interact with them and enjoy that experience. Look, right here, we've got tourists taking photos
3: of them. (laughs) Hey, guys. I'm working on a podcast and it's actually about birds. Do you mind if I ask you a couple of questions? <laughs> no. Absolutely no clue about birds. Right? No, because I just saw you taking a photo of an ibis. Have you ever seen anything like that in Germany? Do they have that type of no, bird there? No, no, they're not in Germany, no. And why were you taking a photo of it? <laughs> we are on vacation here for um, three days in Sydney and... And what do you think of the ibis? Did you know it was called the ibis? <laughs> no, we didn't know. Um... Not the beautifulest bird, but okay. (laughs) That's exactly right. Well, that's all I wanted. Thanks. Thanks, guys. That's so funny. Not the most beautiful bird. (laughs)
6: Outrageous.
0: (laughs) It's not just tourists that find the ibis interesting. It recently divided the nation by almost being named
6: Australia's Bird of the Year by The Guardian, and it caused quite a stir in their offices as well. So there's a long-running debate in The Guardian about magpies. Myself and Catherine Murphy, who is the political editor, are both redheads, and we don't like magpies, and they don't like us. And we have a theory that it's because they hate red hair. Now, I've believed this since I was a kid, and I think, you know, it's basically science now. (laughs) And so uh, Australian readers were loving the New Zealand bird poll. So I sent an email to uh, All Guardian staff and asked them to tell me their least favourite and favourite birds. And, well, I did not expect what happened.
3: Look... uh I've never seen an issue raise such passions in this newsroom to be honest. <laughs> people got very fired up.
6: An email thread went on for 2 days that was so passionate. I didn't know so many people were bird people, like capital B bird people.
3: Um so my favorite bird was the magpie and I've always it's a lot it's a, I guess a long standing appreciation of their ability to form and then hold grudges sort of based on Nothing other than just they didn't like the look, they don't like the look of individual people. And once they decide they don't like someone, that's kind of it. (laughs) And that person's a target forever, I guess. I like the innate spitefulness of them, I guess, is, is me. And also the singing voice is, you know, really cool.
1: I have very strong feelings towards the cockatoo. Um, They're pretty, but they're evil. And this all comes down to one specific incident. I lived in a third floor apartment and I'd been for a run and I'd put my runners out on the balcony and a cockatoo used to come and visit us quite a lot. It'd sit on the balcony, it would squawk and it came by on this day and it sort of squawked at me and I was not, you know, I didn't want to feed it and so I ignored it. Anyway, I shouldn't have ignored it because then it walked over to my shoes that were sitting on the balcony and one by one... I swear he did this without breaking eye contact. He picked up a shoe by the laces and then he looked at me and then he dropped it over the side of the balcony. And then he looked at me again and then he picked up the second one by the laces and then he dropped that one over the side of the balcony and
6: then he looked at me and then he flew off. I had always been a very strong defender of the IBIS, but when the Twitter campaign and social media campaign began to support the ibis. I really felt that the ibis supporters weren't actually proper bird people and I felt they were hijacking what is actually while fun, a very serious poll. You know, we dis- we discovered that Australians are very serious about their birds and I didn't like the idea that a silly online campaign could hijack this very important poll. So I switched my allegiances from the ibis to the magpie, my mortal enemy. I had to really ask myself some serious questions and it took me two weeks to vote because I really couldn't decide.
0: The ibis was on top of the Guardian's Bird of the Year poll in 2017 for almost the entire voting period. But just at the end, the magpie swooped in and took the top spot. If you see any wildlife in the city, especially any rare or endangered species, we'd love to know. You can find the links to tell us at talesofsydneypodcast.com. Thanks for listening to Tales of Sydney. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss out. This podcast was created by City of Sydney and inspired by the Something Else is Alive exhibition at Customs House. Special thanks to the Curators Department, the Royal Botanic Gardens and Guardian Australia.